Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, Clear Choices listeners. Another episode of Clear Choices coming your way. In this new era that we're all uh, facing, you know, there is still time to be thinking about how to grow your wealth and take advantage of what opportunities may be coming uh, given our new economic reality during COVID. So our guest today, Andrew Cushman, is a former chemical engineer uh, who found his entrepreneurial calling in real estate. In 2007, he left his corporate position to start a business in real estate investment, starting off flipping single-family properties in Southern California. Sensing a shift in the market in 2011, he transitioned to multifamily, which is apartment buildings, and has successfully syndicated, we'll tell you what that means in a bit, and repositioned over 1,800 multifamily units. Outside of the business world, he's been a certified alpine ski instructor, that's close to my heart, as a former ski racer. And when not working in real estate, he enjoys surfing, backcountry skiing, and trying not to be outwitted by his two children. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Oh, thanks, Rob. Good to be here. I really appreciate you being here today. So, First of all, I want to just dive right in and ask you, chemical engineer to real estate investor, that's not a choice or a transition that, you know, one would expect. Yeah, it was um, basically, you know, as a kid and especially even in, in high school, I always knew I wanted to kind of do my own thing, have my own business, be an entrepreneur. But I, candidly, I had no clue what that looked like, uh, you know, in the real world. I mean, I mowed lawns and you know, sold lemonade. Did all, I mean, did all those typical like high school type business, high school kid type businesses, but I didn't know what that looked like as an adult. So I figured, well, you know, I'm good at chemistry. I like chemistry. I like problem solving. So put those two things together. Oh, that's chemical engineering. So if I get a chemical engineering degree, number one, I can always get a good job. I always have an income and it's something I can at least tolerate until I figure out what my real calling is. So that's, that's why I became an, a, a chemical engineer and uh, did it for, like you said, you know, seven and a half years or so. And I'd gotten married, uh, let's see, I guess about we got married 2004. So about four years after I started working full time and my wife had the same mindset. And so we explored all kinds of little businesses. We you know, tried making flavored popcorn. We looked into vending businesses, all that kind of stuff. And everything, you know, we either made a little bit amount of money and it was like, well, okay, if we do this, it's really just replacing one job for another. And what we realized is in order to really reach our goals of, you know, independence, meaning we're, you know, we're running our own business and, and, working essentially for ourselves, it's going to have to be something more than, than that. And um, one day we saw an article in the Wall Street Journal about flipping houses and kind of went and learned how to do that. We did our first one and we said, you know what? Uh, and it went really well. And we said, you know what? There's no, it's either now or never. I, I, we haven't found anything better than this. We enjoy it. So I went in and quit my job, went full time into flipping. Two years later, my wife did the same thing. And then shortly thereafter, we said uh, we transitioned into apartments and multifamily. We thought for a handful of reasons, we felt that was a much bigger, better opportunity. 
And uh, so far, so good. That it turned out to be uh, the right choice. I enjoy doing it. It's been successful so far. So uh, that that was. Uh, that's a, there's a lot of questions I want to ask within that. So first of all, how was being a chemical engineer? Like, did you hate it for seven years? Did you like it for a while? Were you always seeking for something else, or? I did. I didn't hate it. No. Um, I, fortunately, I I was able to. Uh, so I did a couple summer internships, and one of those was with a guy in company that I really enjoyed working with. So I was. Uh, I had a great boss when I did come work for a company. So that 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 had a, a big impact. You know, working for a guy who was just a, a really good supervisor. Um, so that helped. And second, I I did enjoy you know, the, the engineering and the chemistry and all that, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, I didn't enjoy having a fixed schedule. I, you know, I had to be at a certain place at a certain time in the morning, all of that. So yeah, it was very much, Hey, I'm going to, I'm doing my job. I'm going to show up for my nine hours a day. I'm going to give them all I've got for nine hours, but then I'm out of there and I'm trying to, and I'm using the rest of the time to figure out how, you know, my wife and I can quit and go, you know, be free from that. So, so next question, and I, I don't mean to sound stereotypical, but like typically in like knowing a little bit about personality and behavioral styles, you know, typically the person with that kind of science structured mind, right? Like being in a loose environment where everything's kind of free flowing is sometimes a challenge for them. And so it's interesting to me that you went from this sort of, you know, discipline, discipline, no pun intended, um, to... Uh, after doing one f- successful flip and you're like, Hey, I'm quitting my, like it worked. I'm quitting my job and we're going to do this full time. Like that's a pretty bold move for the normal. Like when you think of the normal person who's in the sciences, like that's a pretty, that's a pretty bold choice to make. So talk to us about that. It was, it, it was a factor of number one, you know, where our heart was, but two truly and try objectively weighing the pros and cons, right? So what's the worst thing that could happen? All right, I quit my job. The flipping thing doesn't work. I could go, my worst case scenario is I went right back, I'd go right back to the company I left and say, hey, you know, I'd like to rejoin you. And I rejoined you guys. And I left on good terms. They told me, hey, if you want to come back, you can come back, right? So that was my, my worst case scenario was I would just go back to the status quo. And I very intentionally tried to tried to arrange it that way. And so, okay, so the, what's the worst case? Well, the worst case is I got to go back to my job. Maybe I lose some money on a flip or two. But, you know, you know, at that time we were in our 20s and we said, all right, well, we've got, you know, we can recover from that, right? And I would say even in my 40s, I would still say the same thing. Like, you know, there's time to recover from that. So that, so that was a big part of it. And then you know, when we looked at, okay, well, what's the upside? Well, the upside is, is this really works, and if it does really work, not only do we gain our independence, but we will build financial wealth at a far greater pace than I ever would, you know, just working a regular job for, you know, as an engineer for a company. Not that that was a bad job. It was a great job and I was thankful to have it, but the alternative upside was far greater. And so it made sense kind of weighing this. Well, you know, the worst case scenario is I go back to my job and maybe I've lost some money in the middle. The best case scenario is I end up, you know, five, 10, 15, 20 times better position than I would have been if I stayed. And so it, was, it made sense to do that. Yeah. And that was the exact next question I was going to ask without, without asking you like what your income or net worth is now. But if you would have stayed in that chemical engineering role for all these years, what would what do you think would be the difference in your net worth now now versus had you stayed? 
Yeah, had I stayed, you know, we would have, um, and I would have kept contributing to 401ks and all that. Today, it's probably about 10 times what it would have been if I had stayed at my job. So what what caused you to go from flipping on your own, which is, you know, kind of sounds like something you and your wife were just doing with your own assets to now opening it up to, you know, syndicating and doing larger developments where there's other investors. And I guess before you answer that, you should explain what syndication is because probably not everybody knows what that is. Yeah, there's a, well, there's a handful of things there. And one, and, and I didn't, you know, we didn't get to as far as evaluating whether or not, you know, the, to make that choice to go in and quit my job or not. And when I walked into my boss's office, my mom, I, I leaned on his desk, my arms were shaking. I'm like, man, I'm like, seriously, I'm about to quit. This man, this was also, this was the end of 2007. We were like heading into the biggest recession in a long time and I'm quitting my cushy job, right? Um, but part of what we were evaluating is, hey, this will give us time to, you know, my wife and I to work together. This will give us time to be available for when we have kids to, to you know, spend whatever time we want with them, right? Just that that whole freedom of time and, 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 and energy Energy and if I don't want to wake up at 630, I don't have to, you know, that kind of, so we weighed all of that stuff that it wasn't just, it definitely was not just financial. Flipping. Yeah, that was my, just my wife and I, uh, we did eventually hire some, like a part-time assistant just to help with some admin things. Uh, but um, it was not with our own funds. Um, you know, we we're flipping in Southern California. So, you know, even at a discount, you're still talking, you know, several hundred thousand dollars for, you know, for properties. And if you've got several of those going at a time, that's a lot of money. So we found, we worked on finding private investors, right? So I didn't have the money to buy it, make a $400,000 purchase, but we went and found someone who had $400,000 and said, Hey, we'll give you this interest rate. And, and then, you know, for providing the money and then, so they get a return and then we flip it and pay them. And then hopefully we made a profit and we get paid. So yeah, we did that for about four years. It was a great business. But eventually what happened is everyone else figured out it was a great business and the amount of equity uh, was, the equity was disappearing as property values cratered and uh, most, most properties were upside down. And then there's things you can do with those, but it was, it was a strategy that we didn't really want to get into. And so we kind of said, all right, well, what's going to be the, what's, what's the, the next big thing, right? And we said, well, all right, well, all these people are getting foreclosed on. They, they can't go buy a house. They got to go rent. And then, well, okay, we, we were in the bottom of a big recession, which means we're about to start an expansion sometime soon, right? So, all right, so that means increasing jobs, increasing incomes. Well, what's going to benefit from that, right? Well, apartments should benefit from that, right? You got all kinds of renters, you got job formation, you got income increases that people can't buy houses, so apartments going to do really well. So, yeah, we went and actually found, um, found someone who had done 800 units, uh, hired him as kind of a coach and mentor, and uh, went and did our, our first deal it was 92 units on the other side of the country out in Georgia. And uh, we, as you mentioned, we syndicated it. So what that means is just like with the, the flips, we didn't have the cash, but we had the, the expertise and, the, and we were willing to put in the, the time and the work. So uh, we needed to raise $1.2 million for that property to acquire and renovate it. And that's, we, it took us six months. We, we were, we were naive in, in estimating how difficult it was to raise that much money at that time in the cycle and with a much smaller network than we have now. So it took about six months to raise the money, but we did it. We went out and, um, you know, a hundred thousand dollars from one person, 50,000 from another person, and actually got $200,000 carry, um, loan from the seller himself got to the 1.2, you know, bought the property, fixed it up, eventually resold it for almost three times what we bought it for. And um, yeah, since that, that first one was difficult, but if we hadn't 
made the decision to go ahead and just do it, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be having this conversation here today. And, and like you mentioned, you know, we, at this point we've done over 1800 units and it's, it's been a, a fantastic business. So that's amazing. So, uh, help people understand exactly like what the, the 411 is on a syndication, like how it works. Yeah. It's basically like, um, you know, all right, you know, cruise ships are pretty unpopular right now, but let's 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 go let's go back to pre-COVID, right? If you want to sail around the Caribbean for ten days, you're not going to go buy a two billion dollar cruise ship and, and do that by yourself. So what what to do is, is the cruise ship company either builds or buys the ship, and then you know say okay, three thousand people, you all invest you know X amount. We'll, we'll, we'll operate it. We'll, we'll drive it around the Caribbean. You get to enjoy the benefits. And if we do a good job, we'll make some money along the way too, right? It's kind of, it's kind of the same idea with syndication is you're taking an apartment complex and as individuals, nobody is going to be, no one's going to be able to buy that themselves. So we do say, okay, we'll, we'll find it. We'll operate it. We'll do all the work. Let's say we need $1.2 million in order to do that. Each invest, listen, let's say 12 people puts in $100,000. And then for the life of that property, let's just say we hold it for five years, every quarter, the people who put that money in get a check, right? They get the profits or the benefits from having partial ownership of that property. And then when we sell it, it's the same thing. They get the, whatever their percent ownership is, they get of, of the profits from it, right? So it's a way of, 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 enabling people, both us as the sponsor or the syndicator and individual investors, it's a way of enabling a group of people to share a benefit that they would not be able to share individually. That's, that's well explained and very understandable. So tell me, what is it that you look for, um, you know, in terms of how do you determine an area how do you determine a property size and, and if it's a good value and what kind of return are you expecting and shooting for? So we generally look for our, our favorite areas, the Southeast US. So North Florida, Georgia, Carolinas, and like Eastern Tennessee. And there's plenty of other great markets around the country, but you know, you, you kind of have to pick an area that you're going to be good at and, and try to stick to it in general. Um, so we like the Southeast US. The reason we like it is because it's generally business friendly. We have long-term demographic trends where people are moving from the Northeast and the upper Midwest down to the Southeast. So if you've got units that you're going to rent, it's always good to have more people moving into the area uh, because the, you know, generally speaking, if someone moves into the area, almost, I forget the percentage, it's crazy high, like 80 plus percent or something, they will rent before they buy. Even if they, and, and, and that doesn't even factor in the people who will never buy, right? So even someone who's going to buy a house will often come rent an apartment first. So you want to be in areas where there's population growth and then jobs follow population growth. So the, the more jobs there are, the easier you're going to have when it comes to leasing units, getting higher rents, et cetera. So we look at places where there's population growth, job growth. We like to have median income at a, at a level where our apartments are very affordable, right? So rough rule of thumb, an apartment is considered affordable if someone can spend 25% or less of their gross monthly income on rent, right? So that's, so we're all, so we're going to check, we check for median income where our apartments are going to be affordable to the vast majority of people living there. Um, So those are actually two of our most important things. And then we're just, we're generally looking for properties that are 80 to 250 units because we, there's a lot of efficiencies of scale at that size. You can put in like full-time employees to, to, you know, to, to work and live on site. And it's just 
they uh, they get to be much easier to manage um, at that size. And we're generally kind of we do what's called the workforce housing or, or B class. So there's A class, which is brand new luxury stuff. B is you know blue and gray collar workers. C is uh, you know, maybe you're the people who are working two or three jobs at, you know, retail or something like that. Uh, D is, is pack heat if you go there because it's dangerous. But um, we're, we're generally in the B space, which is kind of the, kind of the middle ground afford most, almost, you know, most people in any given market can afford it and still have a little bit of income left over. And they also tend to have real stable jobs. So that's kind of the, the niche that we focus on. Very, very uh, cool. I appreciate you um, explaining that a bit. Uh, looking at your website right now, um, by the way, it's called Vantage Point Acquisitions. And for the listeners, it's vpacq.com, vpacq.com. And so you say something interesting there. You say enhanced returns, enriched communities. So talk to us about how you enrich communities. A lot of the properties that we buy are either somewhat or significantly neglected, right? So you go into a property and you know the it's atlanta and it's august and it's 98 degrees and the pool is closed because you know the gate's broken and um there's you know potholes in the parking lot and you know have to you know a lot of the ac units aren't working you know basically we find these properties where the the residents just aren't really being well cared for and what we try to approach it as is an apartment property isn't just a building with tenants. It is, it's a community of people and each one takes on its own, you know, tone and culture. And as the owners and managers of that community, you get to set what that tone and culture is not only by how you run it and how well you respect those residents and how you treat those residents, but also what, by what kind of residents you let in. Right. So like, you know, a lot of uh, some some owners will just let anybody in who can sign a lease, uh, but you know, just to get units full. But to create a good community, you know, we do things like you know, screen out anyone with um, uh, violent uh, crime on their on their record. Right? If they've got an assault or something like that on their record, then you know, they're not going to be able to come rent from us. Uh, we're also you know very strict on things like um, you know loitering or if we suspect drug dealings going on or you know any of those kind of things. But then also just you know, just think of, well, how would you improve a community, right? Improving lighting, uh, making sure landscaping is kept up, making sure, you know, just day-to-day services that residents depend on are working. Like, so the laundry room is open and functioning. The fitness room is clean and safe and functioning. The pool is is open, that, uh, you know, packages are handled well, that if some if something breaks down in the apartment and the resident needs something, that our team is is you know, very responsive to that. Um, so that, that, that's all, that all goes into, into forming a community. And then also we try to do uh, like resident events. Like we started bringing in food trucks and doing festivals and parties and giveaways and things like that, just so that, you know, people get out of their doors. Of course it's a little tougher now, but, um, but people get out of their doors and meet each other. Right. So that they have, you know, it's not just, okay, this is where I live and I walk in and out and that's all I do. It's well, okay, I live here, but then I've got a friend three units down and I've got another friend on the other side. And you know, it, gets, it gets people to like watch out for each other more. I would Exactly. Think. Yeah. So, so you brought up COVID a little bit. So I'm curious, does your, is your mindset around this investment silo change at all because of COVID? Like do our apartments 
more attractive to you or less attractive to you as we head into this new kind of unknown? And before you answer that, because obviously like the office uh, rental space is severely hampered right now because of COVID uh, and, and might be forever changed because of that, because the way we work has has changed significantly. So I'm curious what your commensary take is on how this impacts apartments. One of the main reasons we went into apartments and especially the B-class apartments is the long-term demographic trends strongly favor them. We have, we, we, we're actually, we're not building enough housing, right, in, in the U.S. So we have a long-term housing shortage. COVID is actually going to exacerbate that as new development kind of comes to a halt. It's going to, you know, make it so that we have an even greater shortage of housing, especially in the C&B space. So, in, in another in another reason that we've always liked apartments is it's probably the most recession resistant, uh, one of the most recession resistant asset classes out there because you know people can stop buying TVs, people can stop going on vacation, they got to live somewhere. Yeah, and most people, yeah, you, you, yes, they can double up, they can go back and live with a roommate, live with mom and dad or whatever, but the vast majority are going to do whatever they can to still keep a roof over their head. And that might mean, you know, instead of moving, instead of living in a $3,500, you know, studio in LA, maybe they're going to go down to a $2,500 one in the suburbs. Right. So we've actually always, always kind of focused on those properties. And so while the current recession, uh, I do think it could have a significant impact in the short term on rents and collections, meaning, you know, vacancy may go up, uh, income collected may go down. We actually see that as an opportunity to try to pick up more assets at lower prices because long-term, the current pandemic actually makes the outlook for multifamily even more favorable. People are going to be less likely to maybe want to buy housing and or able for that matter. Yeah, um, able. So that so that that came into your, you know, your choice around this is like it was something that you felt was maybe uh, – recession-proof to some degree, which leads me to my, my quote that I picked for you. Tell me what your thoughts are on this. I don't believe all this nonsense about market timing. Just buy good value, and when the market is ready, that value will be recognized. Interesting. Who said that? That is Henry Earl Singleton. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's definitely truth to that. Um, so we, you know, we've scaled back our acquisitions temporarily, uh, but we are still looking at properties and the prop, if we were to buy something now, it would fit that definition. It would be something that we feel like the value is there no matter what. Right. So if we buy it today, if let's say prices and rents and everything goes down over the next year, we would still want to own that property because, it is our firm belief that once we get out of this, whether it's a year, two years, five, who knows, that asset pricing and performance will continue upward, right? So yeah, so if you can, if if you if we can buy a property and it'll cash flow well through a recession, so if we say, okay, what happens if rents drop ten percent? Does this does this still cash flow? Can you still pay the mortgage and the expenses? Mm-hmm. If the answer is yes, and it's in a good market then yeah, it would make sense to go ahead and buy that because it is the, one of the beautiful things about real estate. And one of the reasons we chose it as a, as, as a, as a, our main business and asset class is with very rare exception, as long as you can always pay the mortgage and you don't lose the property, if you hold it long enough, it will always be profitable because your, your residents are paying down the mortgage for you. Right? So even if you bought a property for, 
you know, $500,000 and you held it for 30 years and it's still worth $500,000. If somebody else was renting it and paying down the mortgage, then you still made, you, you still make a profit on that building. Now, granted, it might not be the best return, but you're still making something off of that building just by holding a good asset in a good area for, for a long enough period of time. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, that's really sound advice, not only just about real estate, but just an approach to investment, uh, investment making decisions to begin with. Um, so, you know, the, the audience can't see this right now, but I've shared screen with you and I'll put this link in the show notes. I kind of wanted to get your take on this. This is a chart from uh, the visual capitalist uh, and it's a chart of what assets make up people's wealth. And, you know, so we're looking at people with a net worth starting at 10,000, it goes to 100,000, it goes to a million, 10 million, 100 million, and a billion. And then you have these asset classes, which is liquid, primary residence, vehicles, retirement, real estate, businesses, et cetera. And I found it really interesting because um, it being in real estate myself, I would have, I was going to guess that as you got wealthier, real estate was going to become a bigger and bigger piece. But what happens, and I'm curious your take on this. So uh, for people, let's say, we'll just start at the $100,000 net worth level, their biggest assets, their primary residence. That doesn't surprise me. Now you're at a, when you go to a million net worth, the primary residence is amongst the biggest, but then you've also got the stock portfolio and the retirement plan. And then, and then you start getting into bigger chunks of business ownership. But as you go from 10 million or a hundred million or a billion, so that the real ultra wealthy business ownership or business interests become by far the dominant percentage. So like when you get up to a hundred hundred million dollars of net worth, half of it is in business interests. And then real estate is, you know, I'm guessing, but it's approximately 10 or 15%. Um, so I'm curious what your take is on that. And, and do you consider if people own multiple, uh, let's say apartment syndications, are those business interests or is that real estate? Like how, how are we, how are we thinking about this? Uh, it depends if, 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 uh, yeah, and you know, and it really, it really can be. I mean, looked at either way because each asset is is really its own little business, right? I mean, you've got your income, you've got your expenses, you've got your employees, you've got a tax return at the end of the year. Now, investors don't have to worry about that; they just get a K one that says, you know, here's just kind of has a hey, here's here's how much was distributed, and then you know, depreciation offset that and all that kind of thing. But um, so it really can be looked at either way. Most people that I know, if they you know, when they put it on their their chart of you know what they own, they they do label it as real estate. I label it as real estate because that's what's generating it. But it's basically look at those apartments as real estate run as a business, right? So it's really both. That this chart doesn't surprise me though, because and here's why. If I mean, and again, your listeners can't see it, but you know the very low level real estate's a small piece. As you get to the mid level, one million, ten million, a hundred million. The real estate piece grows, and then as you get to a billion, it shrinks back down. And if you think about, look at, you know, look who are the wealthiest people? You know, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos. These are guys that started wildly successful businesses. And if you can do that, that is, I think, the fastest way on the planet to becoming ultra wealthy. And I think that's why you see this on the chart, where when the higher up you go, the bigger that business piece goes. But if you look in the middle. Real estate, that's the middle is where real estate 
has its biggest, you know, kind of, it kind of bulks up a little bit. Yeah. And if I can, if I can just interject there, like, you know, the, I know, I don't know the average net worth off the top of my head of the average American, but I, I, I want to say it's like 150,000 or something like that. Uh, and the bulk of that is their primary residence. So for, so for most people in America on average, not necessarily the listeners of this show, but on average, you know, to get to a million dollars in net worth is a pretty big deal. Like most very few Americans are above a million dollar net worth. And if you look at the million dollar net worth category on this chart, you know, it's pretty heavily real estate based to your point. It's primary residence and then the other real estate owned and businesses that makes it, those are the three big buckets. Yeah. And actually, so you're right. I wasn't even factoring. So if you take really, so this chart has real estate as a, as a separate piece in addition to primary residence, if you add those two together for those first, you know, for basically almost every category except for 100 million and billion, real estate combined is by far the biggest, the biggest piece, right? And that's one of the things I love about real estate is it is probably, in my opinion, real estate is the surest and most easily accessible for the everyday American to build wealth, right? And, you know, if you look at, for example, how we did it, and many of the people I know did it, we didn't have the money to do it. So we found people who did, right? And that's one, that's one of the great things about real estate is, all right, let's, you know, I want, you want to buy a duplex. Uh, okay, we well, don't have the money. Well, if you network enough, you'll eventually find somebody who can provide that piece. And then you can get into real estate. And, you know, before you know it, you're dealing with pretty big numbers. And in, in all of the education nowadays uh, to do that is largely free. I mean, if you listen to enough podcasts and YouTube videos and all this stuff, you can get really, really far as Absolutely. far as how to do it. And, and, you know, I know some people who are multimillionaires now who literally started in the ghetto, you know, dirt broke. So. Yeah. Well, and, and, and as, as we were talking about that, I, I just, you know, used the power of the internet and, uh, and looked up some, some average net worth numbers. So in America, um, and so you guys, everyone listening can kind of get a sense of where they fit into this. From the age of 35 to 44, the average net worth in the country is 288000 if you're age 35 to 44. From 45 to 54, the average is 727000 55 to 64, 1.167 million actually goes down just slightly to 1066 if you're 65 to 74 and then 75 it doesn't really change much 75 plus it's also around the same 1067 so you know the 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 wealthiest segment of our population is between ages 55 and 64 i just i just entered that category by the way i'm 55 yeah so. <laughs> well and 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 there's some really interesting there though if you look at it, it says the average is like a million right right but, but the median is like 200,000 yeah the, the difference is is that average factors in jeff bezos right yeah and, exactly you know, and whereas the median says, okay, you know, 50% of people are lower than this and 50% are higher. So to me, the median is more telling. And that, that number was, like I said, probably a fifth of what the average Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I just, sorry, I erased it from the screen. But yeah, you're right. It's, uh, yeah, if, if, the, if the, the highest category was 1.167 million at the 55 to 64 category, the, the, the median was like 280 or 300 or whatever it was. So it was a lot, a lot lower. 
when you look at being in that in that middle. So, well, the, the beautiful thing is, is that what you do and what your company does is really helping people build that that wealth, give them a, 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 a really a kind of a turnkey option to do that. And I wanted to give you an opportunity before we close up to talk a little bit about the um, the educational service that you're providing that people can subscribe to if they're interested. Yeah, this is something uh, we've people have been asking us for years, and we were just uh, had you know had too much else going on, didn't have the bandwidth. So I fi- finally brought on a couple people to help, and and that uh, that 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 made a big difference. So we started. We call it the multifamily accelerator, and it's for people who have already done at least one real estate investment. So maybe you bought a house, you invested passively in another deal, you you know have a duplex or a couple of apartments, small apartments, you know whatever that is. And the idea is to um, yeah, I've got, you know, X amount of experience, but when you bring together a group of people, um, you know, 30 or 40 whatever people who all have the same goal and intention and mindset, that the wisdom of that group is far greater than any one individual. And so that's what we've put together. We've got uh, right now, I think it's 37 members who are all actively in real estate, but looking to grow and scale beyond where they already are. And so what we do is we do some, you know, coursework and teaching, but it's very much community uh, involvement and peer to peer. And, you know, how can we help each other scale? Right. So let's say I'm, buying a 10 unit property and I'm running into some problems negotiating with a seller. Well, uh, you know, we can bring that up on one of our calls and have 35 people uh, troubleshoot that and come up with ideas of maybe, you know, how we can, you know, how you can get, get past that and get that close. Uh, and it's been a, it's been an amazing experience uh, so far and I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot from it. So. How do people uh, participate in that if they want some more information? So uh, there's a the, on the website that you mentioned earlier, the vpacq.com, there's a tab in the upper right. I believe it just says mastermind. And if you click on that, it has a, um, has a, a brief description and then there's an apply here link on it. And we're in the process of uh, updating that website and uh, in, in particular that tab. So it's, it's amazing how quickly uh, websites and uh, all that stuff seem to uh, get stale and out of date these days. Like you get it done, you turn around for two seconds, and then all of a sudden it looks old. Yeah, I, I, I totally know that feeling. So tell me uh, in closing, what would be your kind of closing thought that you want to talk to people about their choices around investing and, and real estate investing? Um, uh, you know, how do, how, how do people like what, what kind of takeaway would you like people to get from from your philosophy? Well, the, the number one, the number one thing is, is really just comes down to when you know one once you make the choice to just commit to it and just do it like that first deal for us was agonizing it was scary as heck it was incredibly difficult we did not know how we were going to get all the way but we decided to take the first step knowing that you know if, if you're on a if you're on a foggy road and you're you're driving you can only see 10 feet in front of you but you drive 10 feet and then you can see the next 10 feet right so it's taking that first step just doing it but really you know what that brings up is, okay, well, how do I get past the fear uh, that I have uh, to, to even take that first step? And I go back to kind of what we, what we did is, is the, is the analysis of, okay, what is realistically the worst case scenario? You know, what is my greatest fear? And then, okay, what is the, what is the upside of this? What's the greatest benefit and put that down on paper and let it sit for a bit. 
and then come back and number one, say, okay, well, is that worst case, you know, what is the, what is the likelihood or what are the odds of that? Right. And then what are the odds of success? And then just try to, and try to balance those things out. Right. I mean, if you're going to, if your potential upside is, Oh, Hey, I might make $10,000 with this investment, but it also has the, but you have to invest a hundred thousand to do it. And that could go to zero, like with like investing in the stock market. Well, that maybe that's not the best, you know, risk reward ratio. Right. So many times your, your worst case scenario, when you sit down and write it out, it doesn't look nearly as scary or plausible on paper. And that can help you, have a clearer path to making a decision and it also gives you a record of why you made that decision so someday in the future if you're ever looking you know back with perfect hindsight if things didn't go perfectly well you're not beating yourself up because you're saying well look look with the information i had at the time we made the right decision we made the best decision we could given what we knew at the time love it i really appreciate that and i appreciate your insight uh, thanks for being on the show. Um, all the links to the material we mentioned today will be in the show notes, listeners. And uh, I wanted to remind you all as well, uh, if you're interested in private coaching with me, just go to clearchoices.live or email me at rob at robeigner.com for wealth-related and business coaching, mindset coaching, etc. I'm happy to talk to you in, in private. Uh, This has been another episode of Clear Choices. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. All this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.